All right. Welcome back to the Black Muse Podcast. I am your host, Jason Muse. We are back. We are live. We are keeping it pushing. Um, as I've explained before in previous episodes, uh, we have two different types of shows. One is the current events one where we uh, uh, talk about multiple different um, kind of current events topics. Um, and we do kind of like a little Costco sample of our opinions on these things. And then the other one is more of a deep dive episode where we spend the entire episode talking about one topic and going as deep as possible and exploring all of the nuances and things like that. So today is going to be a deep dive episode. And the topic of discussion for today is going to be uh, Daily Wire and in particular Matt Walsh's documentary that came out not too long ago called What is a Woman? Uh, it has been uh, the talk of the town, particularly amongst uh, right-leaning conservative circles. Um, it's a documentary uh, that touches on hot-button controversial issues uh, surrounding trans rights, uh, surrounding um, uh, the, the medical controversies about what is the best form of medical care for trans youth. Um, it explores uh, even some philosophical ideas around uh, how definitions ought to work and what the political motivations uh, for the changing of definitions might be, or the establishing of definitions in the first place uh, might be, and how that relates to power. All of these things and more uh, are the kinds of things that we're going to be discussing. Whether or not the documentary itself consists of mere right and uh, transphobic right-wing propaganda, or if there's something a little bit more substantive, uh, or at least partially valid, about some of the contents of it. Um, so uh, I'm actually excited to talk about this because I've been meaning to talk about this for a while, and I can I can definitely see some validity on both sides. I guess I guess that's what makes me a moderate. Uh, but I want to make sure that um, I introduce this properly. Uh, and so with that, uh, I want to show uh, the trailer for "What Is a Woman" uh, by the Daily Wire. What is a woman? Can you tell me that? <laughs> Uh, well, you're at the Women's March. You must have some idea. Please, if, if one person could tell me what a woman is. You are not here for women. We ask you to leave. What is that? I'm a husband. I'm a father of four. I host a talk show. I give speeches. I write books. I like to make sense of things. A woman is not anything in particular. There is not one particular thing. It could be many things to many people. Some women have penises, right? Some men have vaginas. I like scented candles. And I've watched Sex and the City. Yeah. How do I know if, if I'm a woman? That's a great like, question. You're not a scientist. You're not a gender studies major. No. How do you know that you're a man? I guess because I got a dick. Can a man become a woman? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a woman, so I, I can't really answer that. Women only know what women are. Are you a uh, cat? No. Can you tell me what a cat is? Do you want to tell us what a woman is? I'm a biological woman that medically transitioned to appear like a male. I will never be a man. And so they go on the internet and they're told that all their problems will be solved if they become a man. So you worry that there, there could be a sort of social contagion element of this? A teeny tiny bit, maybe. It got me at 42. Your child doesn't have a chance. And you're affirming it with hormones that have never been used in this way. Puberty blockers, which are completely reversible. Completely reversible. One of the drugs used is Lupron, right? Which mm -hmm. has actually been used to chemically castrate sex offenders. You know what? I'm not sure that we should continue with this interview. You don't want to talk about the drugs that you give to kids or? 
How can they be removing the healthy breasts of 15-year-old girls? There are masculine girls. There are feminine boys. What are we going to do about that? Carve them up? How can this whole thing be happening, Matt? I wanted us to have a safe place to be able to talk about this. Part of me wants to ask why you care so much. I care about the truth. I care about children. I care about the women who are having their opportunities stolen from them. Is it transphobic to tell the truth? The interview's over. Let's turn off the cameras. Excuse me. Fair I just wanted to know what is a woman. And you're not going to find out. Based on what I'm saying, would you ever want to move to America? <laughs> they say no. Never. <laughs> We'll see when it comes out. I want to actually bring on uh, my guest for today. He's been waiting patiently. Uh, 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 his name is uh, Ibrahima. Um, and so without further ado, let's welcome our guest for today. Ibrahima, the man, the legend. Uh, how are you doing this this morning? How's that? All right, you're back. We're good. Let's let's start that awesome. over. Ibrahima, the man, the legend. How you doing today, man? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. How you? I'm doing quite well. Alhamdulillah. Uh, that was, uh, you know, the formal Muslim greeting. You know, may peace, God's mercy, and His blessings be upon you. Just for translation here. Uh, I'm doing quite well. I'm glad. I'm glad to be back here, my man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm gonna say this the same corny joke I said last time, which is as long as you're not talking about my mama in another language. <laughs> <laughs> we're good. We're good. We're good. Uh, but no, um, no, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show. I've been meaning we've been putting this off for a while. We're finally gonna uh, get down to the nitty gritty. Uh, were you able to uh, see uh, the trailer? Uh, I was. Yeah, I, I saw it. I saw the I saw the documentary. So we, yeah, we both saw the documentary. But I, I meant just like during the show, we were able to kind of see it. Again, yeah, um, yeah. When you were watching the trailer, did you did so for me? I I was kind of reliving, uh, having seen it. I think I think I've seen it four times now in preparation for the show, mostly. But I was kind of reliving certain parts that were highlighted. Was it like that for you? Definitely, definitely. Uh, certainly, the cringeworthy parts uh, definitely came back up. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, um, you know. So we're going on this journey. Boys can be girls. Girls can be boys. Men can be women, women can be men. It makes me wonder, what, what is a woman? What is a woman? A woman is someone who claims that as their identity. It could be many things to many people. Yeah, so I mean, so let's get into it. So, so the, the documentary is titled, What is a Woman? And part of what I think is being conveyed as a part of the message, and I think the message is actually layered, um, is that such a question... Uh, used to be regarded, uh, th that is the question of what a woman is, definitionally, used to be regarded as something very, very simple, uh, like asking what one plus one is, or uh, what asking uh, what letter comes after uh, the letter A in the alphabet, something very simple, we don't really question it. Um, or if you wanted to define uh, other simple things like uh, what a cat is or what a dog is, uh, these are the this is the stuff of grade school. This is the kinds of things that we teach first graders. Um, but yet, it seems lately in our politics, particularly when it comes to gender ideology um, and the mainstreaming of uh, gender ideology as it relates to trans folk, um, that that question is not so easy uh, to answer. And I think that part of the reason, well, I want to invite you to speculate. What, what do you think the reason it could be 
for people like Matt Walsh and those in the Daily Wire to hone in on this question of what a woman is definitionally uh, as a way to kind of, in some sense, push back politically against a lot of the, the tenets of gender ideology. I mean, it seems to me that we're we're sort of shifting the definition like drastically uh, in a very short period of time. And most people have noticed this. Uh, this wasn't something that was uh, part of the mainstream discourse probably until I would say, I mean, I caught on to it early in like 2016, uh, but, but most people didn't really hear about, you know, terms like non-binary or, uh, you know, gender fluid and things like that until 2020. This is when it really became a mainstream household uh, idea. Um, but before the 90s, uh, it wasn't even part of the academic discourse. You know, queer theory kind of came around in the late 90s or so, um, coming out of the radical feminist, uh, you know, school of thought. And what we're seeing today is a, a, a real push through not only political means, um, but in other even non-political institutions to, uh, I mean, I can't even, I, I, for lack of a better word, to, um, you know, coerce essentially the use of specific language in a specific context. And I think that's something, that's a pressure that's being felt by everyone, even if they're not willing to admit it. Uh, guys like Matt Walsh are willing to, you know, push back on it and admit that there is a social pressure to change the way we define these words. Well, I do think that there's definitely social pressure being laid bare, but, but, but in the same way that social pressure is laid bare, anytime you advocate politically for this or that group of people so we can take the civil rights movement there was social pressure being laid bare uh in order to gain civil rights like voting rights for example for black people mm -hmm. uh in order to overturn jim crow laws in the south etc um that's that's actually fairly normal and i think that the people who are um the most ardent supporters or av uh, advocators uh, of the i guess changing of definitions is, as you call it, uh, I think that they think of themselves as doing something akin or analogous uh, to what those uh, members of the civil rights movement were doing. But instead of doing it on behalf of black people specifically, they're doing it on behalf of uh, people who don't quite fit nicely uh, into what they call the gender binary. What do you what do you think about that? Like in terms of like how these people think of what they're doing. Uh, so I think the key difference here is that there are. Um... You know, for example, when we're talking about race, uh, there are, um, you know, biological analogs, uh, not necessarily in differences, but in, in like phenotype. Like I can physically tell that you're black and it doesn't really define who you are other than the fact that, you know, your skin is a certain color. So for me to say that you are a certain way just because of your skin color in itself is an illogical conclusion. Like that's not enough information to determine that about a person and to make laws that follow that line of thought is obviously uh, erroneous, illogical, and it violates human beings' as a, you know, basic rights. But what we're having here is more so a compelling of the use of language in order to change um, the social uh, perception of a, of a really a biological difference. Uh, when we're talking about the gender binary, um, in... In, in the scientific discourse, we have a gender binary because of the binary nature of our sexual organs and our sexual cells. 
even if you are an intersex person, you do still fall within that binary. You either produce one gamete or or another. There, there's no in between. And that actually sort of um before we even like before we even had the scientific discourse, these typical uh you know sexual um organs and the resulting um you know physical limitations or you know advantages of weight or whatever they may be in a man or a woman were just that these were considered to be innate but we didn't have the language to describe uh the biological discourse in itself but back to the gender theory version of this and the reason why um i think it's not like the um, civil rights movement at all is that they're they're using essentially a faith claim it's a set of beliefs it's not necessarily based on any sort of uh, objective reality um but rather a belief, you know, it's, it's combining a couple different ideologies, but it's a belief that language in itself is used as um, a power structure. Um, and therefore, the only reason why we view these people as, uh, um, you know, unfitting to be in one gender or the other, or we're pigeonholing someone in a, in a gender is because of social expectations that we're pushing on a certain type of person. And I think that in itself would require a ton of evidence in order for me to, you know, take that on. But it it doesn't seem like it's uh, it's really the concern as much as it is to compel um, speech in order to to change perceptions. Okay, well, and let's let's pick that apart. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate because I think that there are a lot of things that you said that uh, could be perceived as controversial. Um, or that one could give pushback against if they're coming from this other perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the first place, I think that we, we would do well to acknowledge um, that there are a lot of parallels uh, between facets of our racial identities and facets of our gender identities. Um, the, it, it's not obvious uh, that my skin color is any less biological uh, than the relevant parts of my anatomy that are associated with my biological sex uh, or indeed my gender. Um, the fact that I have a lot of melanin in my skin is biological. Um, it is a product of biology, every bit as much as the fact that I have other parts of my anatomy are, number one. But number two, there does seem to be a kind of interaction between the kind of hardline biological facets of ourselves on the one hand and the social designators that we take these biological factors to indicate about us in social and political context on the other i.e. there's facets of our identities that are indeed socially constructed. This applies to race every bit as much as it applies to gender. Um, It doesn't mean that everything about us is made up, um, but there's nothing, I think, about the fact that I have certain facets of my male anatomy uh, that, for instance, associates me uh, with things that are stereotypically masculine necessarily. Indeed, to, to take a silly case, uh, it associates me with the color blue. That's a, that's a color that's associated with boys or males for some reason. Um, but there's nothing natural uh, in the in the order of the universe that makes that the case. That actually is a function, a fairly arbitrary one, but a function nonetheless of the ways in which uh, we've we we've made associations in social context. And and indeed, that doesn't even hold in every culture. So that might be a, a kind of easy example of that kind of thing. And and if we start to uh, examine this and 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 maybe uh, count 
several more examples of these kinds of uh, socially constructed associations uh, between facets of our anatomy and let's say masculinity or facets of our anatomy and say femininity, et cetera. Um, I think we will start to find out pretty quickly that a lot of the things that we have come to think of as inextricably linked to our anatomy uh, in, in, in terms of our biological sex isn't really inextricably linked at all. And I think that there's, there's at least a part of this discourse on gender ideology is picking apart those kinds of things and trying to point out the ways in which those associations that we hold really fast to have negative impacts for certain people who don't naturally fall into those categories very nicely. Uh, you may have very, very masculine women. You may have very, very effeminate men. You may have men or women who their inner sense of themselves is more in alignment with what we would might call the opposite sex. Uh, or if that's too politically loaded, um, they, their gender identity doesn't, kind of, doesn't quite fit nicely into the, the kind of binary uh, paradigm. I think that's partly that's that's probably the best way to steel man that position, at least at first. Um, do you have any objections to that? Um, you know, I, I would slightly push back on the arbitrary nature of the color associations. I think there is a biological component in that. Well, at least an evolutionary component in that uh, as far as like what we associate um, certain behaviors or certain uh, statuses or, you know, as far as the status, uh, for example, uh, just to, you know, clarify a little bit you know there's things like um purple being associated with uh um, royalty but that's like a historical origin um you know being like a, a color that's really hard to to get um and is only was really only able to be worn by people who had access to a very rare sea mollusk that produced that dye but when we're talking about things like association between red and blue like with boys and 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 girls pink and, pink and blue uh, yeah, pink and, you know, it, it, I, I misspoke. I said I meant pink, but um, red is also something, you know, it's a shade of that pink. Um, and it does kind of associate with like, um, you know, warmer colors versus colder colors, um, colors that, you know, if made a little darker, um, like red, for example, red to pink, that's like a fleshy, vulnerable color rather than a colder uh, color, you know, like blue, if it's made to be darker it's no it's nowhere near um the ability to be you know perceived as like um as a softer warmer color it's more of a, a colder darker um hue like as far as like association between the types of behaviors that you would see typically in one sex or the other um you know as it does seem as if it's completely arbitrary at this point because there's no real um there's no real instinctual uh, sort of draw towards one or the other, but there is a, slight, a slightly, very, um, you know, pull towards that. You know, things like fruits, for example, have a reddish color and do have um, a certain association that women are drawn to, for example. You understand what I mean? Kind of. I mean, it seems like you, to, to steal man you a little bit, it seems like you're trying to push back against the, the, the part of the claim where I said it was arbitrary. Um, and I think you're trying to you're trying to cash that out in terms of um, evolutionary explanations for how the associations came to be the, the way that they, they are. But I, I don't know how. I don't know how helpful that's going to be, because I think the main point that I was trying to make was that there's nothing about the biology 
of the anatomy oh, of males versus females that necessitates the association. Uh, and so that connection in virtue of that seems arbitrary um, because it didn't have to be that way, presumably, because there's nothing naturally necessitating the connection. That's what I was trying to articulate. I mean, you know, and you see this in art as well, uh, in the art world, where you see association with color being used to tell stories in in, a, in an art piece. Um, you know, like you see a lot of like feminist art, uh, you know, depicting, for example, feminine sexual organs. And usually you'll see the colors associated with that not to be uh, sort of like blue or uh, another colder color as much as it is like fleshier looking colors. You understand mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm it, not this saying is something that, that we naturally sort of gravitate towards. And I think the origin of it is evolutionary. And those associations are not just, uh, I, I think they predate uh, the social, um, what's it called? Oh, by a lot, actually, the social uh, uh, administration of those colors to one or the other. It's kind of like a derivation of it. But that wasn't my main point. Uh, I just wanted to touch on that really quickly. Um, but as far as uh, the gender spectrum, as far as like the um, the behaviors that are expected out of someone uh, within a certain gender structure, uh, I think we often leave out the part in which there are such things as ideals. You know, as far as like what we consider to be the the best mix of um, of behaviors within a certain uh, structure, depending on what your attributes are so you know given an example uh like with men and women um there are like legitimate biological differences that kind of define what you can be best at as far as um uh you know whether it be physical prowess or whether it be a sort of interest or time uh that you can pour into a certain um uh what's it called into a certain um endeavor and also, there is a biological clock component when it comes to women and their drive to have children. This is something that I don't think we can ignore because, you know, statistically, about 90% of women by the time they're, they're in their 40s have children. Child rearing and being uh, carrying a child is actually uh, a very time consuming uh, endeavor. It is something that, you know, we see in labor statistics um, having children is one of the biggest um it's one of the biggest factors in predicting a woman's uh, income over time uh, especially if they're single or they don't have uh, a partner in their life it it does cause like actual disruptions in your life in your career um which would kind of warrant the specialization of one gender role within a partnership which does not have to go through the, the burden of, uh, of carrying a child, being vulnerable, the pain um, and the time consuming nature of rearing a child, especially in the early years. So to say that you are going to have children, there are certain attributes that would make you best at, at uh, what's it called, at rearing children. Just as if you are going to be the partner, which is not rearing children, there are certain attributes that make you more valuable than someone else if you were to choose. Because we do discriminate. We choose who our uh, partners are, and we choose them based on certain attributes. So to have an ideal to measure from, I think in itself is, is, uh, 
is something that's innate to any endeavor or anything that we even look at. We, we look, we judge even inanimate objects in that way. Like there are ideals that we reach towards. There are things that are not, a, that don't function quite as well. So to have an idea of like, what's the pinnacle of a man? Like what are the, what are the mixes of, of, uh, of attributes and attitudes and, um, you know, capabilities that make a man very valuable? It's like, if you fall really far away from it, to the point where you feel like you can compete better in the other hierarchy, it doesn't make you less of a man necessarily. Okay, so you've said a lot, and and I want to yeah, I want to be more to... discursive. No, it's fine. I, okay. I want you to I want you to get it out because I want to flush out kind of where you're starting, but I want to I want to introduce this uh, as as politely as possible. I, I'm gonna start being a little bit more discursive and pushing back on specific things line by line, only because. I want there to be a little bit more back and forth. A lot of the things that you're saying, I understand and they resonate with me, but a lot of the things that you're saying, even I, and I'm, I'm more moderate, I'm, I'm not really that gung-ho um, in favor of a lot of the gender ideology stuff, but I do hear where they're coming from. And I, and I do feel that for the purpose of this discussion to make it more expansive and more, um, I guess, useful, uh, that I, I, I kind of have to take on that side a little more and in, in, in stuff. So I want to start with this. A lot of the things that you actually are, are describing in full detail in terms of the idealized man, let's say, or male, and the idealized woman or female, and I, and I think you mean it and understood in the kind of traditional uh, binary uh, paradigm. Uh, I'm only specifying that not to downplay it, but to to emphasize it because for the point I'm about to make, mm -hmm. a lot of the things that you're talking about are still socially constructed, and they have the same kind of arbitrariness that I was trying to say before. And so I, I anticipate that to whatever extent you were pushing back on the arbitrariness before, that a lot of those things would apply to some of the things that that I'm that you're not we're now discussing, but like. The, the set of attributes that comprises the ideal man or the ideal male um, actually varies by society. It's not even uniform across cultures. Um, I think that's one way of getting real quick at, 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 the, at one fact, which is that a lot of that stuff is socially constructed. And, and we can tell because it's contingent upon uh, what the paradigms or dominant ideas in a society or, or given culture even are. Um, if you uh, travel to certain places of the globe, um, certain attributes that are associated with maleness um, would be more emphasized there than other places. Um, there, there may be certain things that we may hear in the West associate more with females that in other places are actually associated with males. So you have um, so one uh, example off the top of my head. And and forgive my ignorance because I know very little. I know I understand this at a basic level is uh, I believe it's called the, the kilt uh that that is that are worn um by uh what culture is that oh my god uh, I scottish. I'm, I'm like yeah the scottish culture and that's something that that resembles a skirt um in the west uh well i guess Scot scotland kind of con consists of the west but here in the united states in particular there that people who don't understand the cultural relevance of that uh may associate that with the skirt because it looks very similar skirts are associated generally with women uh, it's a form of dress that is associated with femininity for various different reasons. Um, but but that is actually a very masculine thing to wear. Um, and it has a lot of, of cultural salience um, that if you're not a part of that culture and you don't learn about it, uh, it might go over your head. That might be an example um, of uh, that illustrates that even the things that are traditionally or generally associated with either sex or either, you know, end mm -hmm. of the gender spectrum, if you want to put it that way. Um, that, that's not even uniform. Um, and you can do that with, with, the, with, with a lot of different aspects uh, that, or things that are associated with men, men and women. All of that to say um, that 
there are going to be people, presumably, in any given culture, in any given cultural context, um, who may be, uh, in some sense, I don't. I want to use these terms carefully because I don't want to be pejorative. They, in mm-hmm. some sense, maybe deviate from the expectations and the social pressures that kind of keep these expectations in line, or in some sense, perpetuate them. Um, uh, uh, it, it makes sense why a person or why several people who don't quite fit these paradigms uh, through no fault of their own um, would perceive those as in some sense oppressive because it restrains the ways with which they can express themselves, the ways with mm-hmm. which they can present themselves in public places with, with, without um, being bullied, without being discriminated against, etc. I think that that is the core of what drives the non-binary and trans activists uh, to the extent that they're not being toxic. Because I, okay. I have a lot to say about the toxicity with which they, they yeah. So, so I want I want I want you to, I want you to I, but but before we go there, because we're gonna get into it, and we're gonna get into the documentary yeah. specifically. But I, I want I want to kind of start us with that because I do think cool. that that's a fair way to steal man the other side. I, I think so as well. But I have two things to say about that. I think one, first of all, um, the, the difference is not in kind but in degree, and two, um, even within a specific culture, those expectations are not uniform. Right. Do you understand okay, so what I mean by with the first, Yeah, I do. We'll start with the first one, though, because I, I don't know that I understand the first point you made. What so do you mean by when that? We're, when we're talking about differences as far as the expectations of males um, within a culture across the world, uh, those there are, there are uh, what's it called, very common themes. There are themes that we see reoccurring over and over and over and over again. And the degree to which each one of those themes is emphasized within a culture varies in degree rather than in kind there are no cultures like at least you know large cultures that have existed for a long time where men are are expected to handle uh child rearing there i'm sure there are some modern examples um that have been made possible through um the advent of non-physical work which you know it hasn't really been that long since we've been able to um take advantage of like you know um like fuel sources to 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 use power that's beyond what your body can produce in a single day. What do you mean? But sorry, I want to clarify something. What do you mean men are not expected? So like child rearing is a vague term. Um, Okay, so essentially, yeah, so what I mean by that is essentially being the primary caregiver for an infant and a child uh, up until to the point where they can sort of uh, be relatively independent. So single fathers don't exist? They do, but that is sort of uh, that is not the ideal sort of situation we're looking for, and also it's a very rare case. It, yeah, I, like I it's think not, it's it not is that typically rare because I, I think. It's but rare if we're talking about couples, point. which you know, I mean, at this point now, like half of kids in this country are born, are raised by a single parent. Well, I think okay. One of the reasons but, I think it's rare is because <laughs> there are there are a lot of typically. So first of all, and and it, and it may be controversial to say this, but <laughs> but I, I'm trying to I'm trying to be fair to both sides, and this is going to be awkward. Um, <laughs> human human males cannot give birth <laughs> to children, right? <laughs> um, 
they, any anybody who does not have the relevant anatomy necessary or required mm-hmm. <laughs> to give birth, a uterus, <laughs> ovaries, all of that stuff, um, uh, a womb, etc., uh, they, they cannot give birth in virtue of that. I think that even the most staunchest radical trans activist types have to admit that fact of biology, right? That's what I mean when I say human males can't give birth. Um, and it's, and it's not, it's not because of some kind of, um, biological condition or something. Um, it's not in virtue of that. It's, it's in virtue of the fact that their anatomy has never been the, the relevant anatomy that, that male human males have cannot produce children. Um, they can produce them in the form of, in the form of, providing the 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 seed or uh, the, sperm cells the, the but, not, but, that, but yeah exactly but they can't produce them um in their bodies as as human females can now um the fact that i had to uh, be very careful about that in in so far as i'm trying to accommodate the kinds of language um that people who are proponents of the gender ideology we mean to discuss kind of kind of use um it's kind of part of what I mean to talk about and kind of part of what ruffles my feathers. But mm-hmm. um, I said that to say that one of the reasons I think it's rare for men to be the primary caregivers is because actually their, their biology and by, by men here, I'm, I'm using it in the more traditional binary term talking about human males. Um, their biology actually isn't even sufficient <laughs> to care for them in terms of like men typically don't produce the breast milk. Um, I know that there are certain uh, circumstances in which males can produce milk, but it's typically human females. And it's typically in virtue of the fact that they were just pregnant, that it, it triggers certain causal mechanisms that actually get, make their breasts enlarge and start produce. They start lactating and stuff like that. That's like, that's like a biological function. Men, that doesn't happen in, in men just because I don't know, women around them are pregnant. Like that's not, that's not typically how it happens. And again, I'm mm-hmm. using men as to refer to human male temporarily. We'll go back to the different ways in which the term man and woman are used in this context, in this discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of one of the things that contributes to it. But like we could easily imagine a society in which men, um, beyond the practicalities of not being able to produce breast milk and things like that, um, still were heavily involved in child rearing. Um, that's not impossible. Um, um, and, and 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 the last point I want to arrive at is like, like child rearing. Actually, men play a vital role in child rearing generally, although I don't know that they play a, as a, a a vital role in the 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 early stages of it when it comes to like nursing and things like that. Um, to be fair, and so like when you say that men are not we don't have any cultures where men are responsible for child rearing. I feel like that's not quite accurate, but I think what you're talking about are primarily things like that are associated with like nursing, like breastfeeding um, and all the other stereotypical things that, that, that we do associate in the West with, with women and with mothers. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to, I have to clarify as well that I'm talking about within a, a relationship um, in, in which, uh, you know, a couple produces a child. Uh, we don't have, I don't think that there are really any cultures out there where the man is the primary caregiver. And I think that's not an arbitrary thing because of something that I mentioned earlier, being that pregnancy is something that usually interrupts careers. Um, it, it, and when you're looking at, um, you know, especially careers that are highly technical, usually any interruption will actually cause you to fall behind. And you, you will fall behind not only in your know-how, but in your income uh, capacity. Um, as well as, you know, other types of work where, you know, you 
I'm sure employers are more likely to um, what's it called? At, at least, you know, employers look at gaps in employment and things like that. And a man who doesn't have to have a, a gap in employment is more marketable in the job market than he would be if he had several ones. And this is or, why or women that, who don't and women who don't have children. Or, or women who don't have children. And actually, we see the same phenomenon actually uh, play itself out in income statistics. Uh, if you look at the, um, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics or census uh, data, um, uh-huh. the highest earning um, class of, uh, of people in, in the country, and I'm sure it's like this around the world, are men uh-huh. who are married, followed by women who have never married, who have never had children, followed by men who have never married, had never had children. And at the bottom of the totem pole, um, these are the people who make up most of part-time jobs, uh, who uh, have the least labor participation and the lowest income, are women who have children but have never married or don't have a partner. It's like th- these are these are things that we see shake out in, in real-world application. Uh-huh. It's like... And I don't think that's arbitrary at all. It's it's really a function of the reality that comes well, along with the lifestyle choices. And if arbitrary is the term that's going to trip us up, we can maybe use a different term. But it 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 is a facet of the ways in which we have organized our society, at least partially. That is something that contributes to that. We do not have to organize our society in such a way where competition uh, is. Uh, the main determining or one of the biggest determining factors for where your lot in life is going to be in terms of your earning potential and whatnot. We could imagine a society that was organized in such a way that actually was very, very accommodating to pregnant women, such that um, even though they had to have maternity leave and various things like that, they could still continue their career trajectories and society would function just fine. And in fact, I mean, there has been there's been strong advocacy and, and various pushes in corporate America and elsewhere um, to to actually or reorganize the structures of our society and the structures with, with which we we organize our our companies and corporations and things like that um, to allow for that. To, to allow for women to go on maternity leave and even even men to go on maternity leave and then come back and their jobs waiting for them, um, for example. And we're start I think we're starting to see that more now more than we've ever seen it before, even though the trends that I'm that that you just described, I think, are generally still true. Um, and so th- to me, that signals the kind of thing I was getting at before, which is the social construct thing is like a very contingent thing. It depends on how we organize our society. And there, there doesn't seem to be any necessity to the ways with which things are now and if that's true then i think that the the those who um have the kind of critique of the gender binary that they have have some bit of a point in that what they're part of what they're recognizing is we don't have to structure our society in the way that we do right we can we can structure our society in a way that's more accommodating to people who don't quite fit into these boxes nicely um, and indeed, I think that they would go further to say we have a moral obligation to do so because that's more inclusive. Right. We have we, we have a moral obligation to organize a society in such a way where it doesn't discriminate against anybody, including those who are non-binary or those who are trans or those who don't quite fit into the gender binary paradigm quite nicely. Um, do, um, can you at least recognize um, the validity I would of, say- of that kind of argument? I would say that that argument hinges on on the assumption that uh, that moral conception is actually most beneficial. Um, and I would actually have to see, you know, where what the origins are of that moral um, conception. 
and what are its actual well, axioms I mean, I, and whether think, or not those are even valid. Well, um, I think that they, they would think of it as analogous to what I would argue, and I think you might agree, that, that we had a moral obligation to organize our society in such a way that didn't discriminate against black people. Uh, I mean, is it true that, because as, as, far, as far as we go right now, there are a lot of people who claim that people are still, actually, as a matter of fact, let me go, let me go at it this way. Um, I don't think discrimination can be uh, centrally planned. Like, I don't, I don't think you, can, you have the ability to centrally plan whether or not people discriminate. And okay. I don't think it's the same thing as the actual conception of well, bigotry. Whether or well, not you hate someone doesn't necessarily dictate so, whether or not you'll, uh, um, what's it called, discriminate against them. I, I don't know what centrally planned is supposed to mean. The way well, you're talking it, about organizing a society. Right, in general, but I don't but we don't centrally plan our society like that. Usually but our how society would you organize has a bunch of different our so our society is actually layered. So our society we have we have local municipalities, then we have uh state jurisdictions, and then we have federal jurisdictions. You know that, right? So we have a confluence of a lot of different organizational structures at different levels and they're and they and actually interact with each other in a lot of nuanced ways. And sometimes they're unpredictable. We don't centrally plan structures of our society in that way so you've introduced a concept that i wasn't even trying to evoke i wasn't trying to make it seem as though that we we when i say we organize our society i don't mean that there's only one entity that does all the organization that's not what i mean the way we organize our society it doesn't is have actually, to be an entity uh, just to clear up uh not necessarily okay but what i mean is it's not centrally planned okay but, but, what but I'm it, saying it is has to come off a sense. singular ideal doesn't it no, not necessarily. So the way our society works, there are a lot of ideals that are popular and a lot of ideas that are widespread, but they're not mm -hmm. uniform across the nation, right? You have mm -hmm. certain pockets of, so of our society, certain states, let's say, um, that are against abortion. You have certain states that are very much accommodating for abortion. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. I can give you a million more, right? So we don't have uniformity even of ideas in our society. We don't even have uniformity in terms of the structure of our society, right? We don't have the same laws, exactly the same laws that, that apply to every single facet of our society. There are certain laws that vary by, by, by degree or by the level of punishment, by what the status of them are considered. Like, for example, whether something counts as a felony versus a misdemeanor, that can act, depending on what it is, that can vary from state to state, et cetera. So there's a lot of nuance we have there. Federal, we have federal jurisdiction, though, as far as like, um, you know, racial um, discrimination or exactly the class. Exactly. Like that. But, that is but a uniform we didn't, but we like didn't always. to organize society. But we didn't always. That, that actually is a product of the fact that what we started seeing especially during the civil rights movement was one of the main pushes of this in our society is people were pushing back against the idea that states had the right to inculcate, inculcate into their laws or instantiate into their laws forms of legal discrimination against certain people. That was, that was a big part of what the civil rights movement was advocating against. And so there, there, there we felt that we, there was a need to federalize and, in, and, in, and actually add constitutional amendments <laughs> uh, to our constitution to make it the case that nobody's going to be discriminated on, on on the basis of immutable characteristics such as race, et cetera, right? And I think that a lot of the gender binary, gender non-binary people that were that were tacitly referring to in this discussion, what they're what they're seizing on is what they think of as something analogous to that, which is that in the same way that we have a moral obligation to organize our society in such a way that we don't discriminate against black people, we don't discriminate against um, the disabled, we don't discriminate against old people, etc. We shouldn't discriminate against people who don't fit into the gender binary either. That um, and so and so if you're going to question the morality of that, 
then it's not obvious how you can get away from questioning the morality of the an analogous principle when it comes to in these other identities. Um. So, are you referring to the fourteenth? When you're talking about the uh, the amendments added, them. are you referring? Are you talking about the Fourteenth Amendment? Well, I mean that predates yeah. the Civil Rights Movement. Um, no, true, but true, true, true. About, but, but if we're but, talking no, about like the Civil I, Rights Act, for example. Let me well, let me clarify. You're right. The, the, yeah. So those amendments do predate the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement added uh, the Voting Rights Bill in 1965, right? Um, mm-hmm. But 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 the Civil Rights Movement was a part of a general abolition movement, and the abolition movement was part of what thrusted in the 13th, 14th, and I think 15th Amendments, right? So that was that was post Civil War. So so I'm, I'm I, yeah. I didn't say that explicitly, but I'm thinking that okay. as a part of that tradition. I, I, I'm getting you. Um, I think uh, you know the things like the Civil Rights Act, for example, even went like beyond that to the point where um, they essentially legitimize the use of things like uh, disparate impact, like you know the like for example, when you see a disparity um, within an industry, you can now sue on a federal level with the EEOC. Um, I, I believe that's that's what it is. Equal opportunity. I forgot what the acronym is exactly. Um, but you can sue uh, just based on the fact that there is a disparity in racial makeup of in a certain company or in a certain industry or whatever it may be without even actually having a harmed party. Um, I think that's an overstep when it comes to legislation in that manner. And I think it actually makes an attempt to equalize the ground and and actually centrally. I think that's that's what, that is also what I mean when I say centrally planning um, a society's, uh, you know, beliefs and um, like a level of discrimination. Um, and it's like when you make attempts to do that, it can fire, it can backfire. There are second and third order consequences that come along with that. Um, like, for example, uh, you know, um, what's a good one? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, affirmative action, for example, uh, where it, it's it's essentially there's an assumption that the disparity in itself comes from discrimination, which is something that I believe that you would have to actually prove logically in the first place to make that assumption. It's not something that you can just make. Uh, you can just assume we have examples from other countries where that's not really the case. Um, but affirmative action in the workplace and affirmative action in schools have second order consequences that actually hurt some of the candidates that it's supposed to help. Uh, one example of that is, uh, you know, if you're looking at affirmative action colleges uh, and you look at the graduation rates for affirmative action uh, students and non-affirmative action students, and you compare the states that have removed those laws, like, for example, in California, and what you see is that that protected class, um, once the affirmative action programs are removed, their graduation rates go up because they're they're actually starting to be matched with schools that are more appropriate so, for their level. But can you just do me a favor, establish the relevance of the because we're we're getting into yeah we're we're going race, but I I want so, go to go to gender. I just so wanted to give an it? example as far as like what are the second and third order consequences of trying to apply laws in ways that are overreaching it for a specific goal. Because I but think how's that germane to what, the gender discussion? Well, where you're talking about organizing a society in order to accommodate uh, for um, certain uh, lifestyle choices that are different from the typical. Um, and what I'm trying well, to say is that it's not, ob- not quite it's, I don't think it's, I'm sorry. What? 
that's not quite how I put it. I'm I'm saying organize a society in such a way where we don't discriminate against. Yeah, but, but that's that's my entire point. Like that that well, that is an accommodation in order not to discriminate. But my point is uh, that controlling how people discriminate is not something I think can be effectively done without causing other uh, huge problems that may even be uh, getting to a point of diminishing returns. Because if we're, like, let me go back to an example that you gave earlier as far as like pregnant women and the job waiting for them after they come back. Uh, the job may be waiting for them, but the field, the, the knowledge base, the market is not waiting for them. That employee is not, and especially if they choose, um, which is actually rarer than, than, than we actually uh, usually discuss, people who have children, women who have children, generally tend to spend a lot more time worrying about their child, doing things for their child, and with their child. That person is no longer completely dedicated as far as like um, the time spent on that work compared to someone who has a partner who specializes in child rearing while they're taking on the role of focusing on increasing uh, their progress um, as far as uh, their income capacity or um, their mastery of a certain skill. Like that's not something that you can just uh, legislate away or um, what's it called or introduce benefits at work. To that's, that's, that's not going to go away. Yeah, you like, can you can systematize all kind. You can you can have all kinds of incentives um, to in, but, organizations, but that, like that, you can give them more money. Like this. But it's still you can do you can do all kinds of things. You can do, give them tax exemptions. You can you can you can force them by or mandated by law. I don't know how effective it would be, um, but oh, no. you can, there's all kinds of things that you can do. Or or you can you can advocate the and, and change the, the cultural problem. milieu around how it's. Or you can advocate and change the cultural milieu around how it's viewed so that it's actually more grassroots in nature and not top down. There's a lot of different things you can do in terms of wait, 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 hold of, on. I'm talking about changing the mechanisms of society in such a way where it's more accommodating to women. In but how would such you, how would you change? But also, the we're not even just society talking in order to stop. Well, I just gave you several over certain, ways. No, no, but like, I'm asking what's about the progress of a seal technologically. Or uh, you don't have to like stop. A, you don't have to stop the progress of a certain field. So, for example, like the that person's progression. Yeah, but that per person's progression is not going to be the same as someone who didn't have an un who, who had an interrupted career. It's not going to be the same. Yeah, it doesn't have. It doesn't have to be in order for them to. Still but if be they're competing, to, to have the have the hold on, let, me, let me finish. You, it doesn't have to in order for in order for them to be able to still have their career and still make progress after whatever however long it took them to um, step away, have their child, um, sharing some of the child rearing responsibilities, etc. Uh, women do it all the time in America, actually, um, and and it's becoming more common now than it ever has been. Some women would think that, that would would argue that it's particularly the feminists would argue that that's progress, but that there's more progress to be made because of the trends that you cited earlier, which is that women overwhelmingly women who have children overwhelmingly um, find themselves find their careers being interrupted in a fairly permanent sense, particularly the most the most in the most male dominated areas of uh, of the economy. I mean, I don't disagree with that, but my opinion is that uh, if you're going to hire people, you're gonna have to discriminate and discrimination is not inherently a bad thing even choosing a sexual partner well insofar as <laughs> even choosing, okay. choosing to have me as a guest you had to choose and discriminate in certain people that you would never 
Alan Everybody Hunter. else said no. Apparently you bad. were not my first choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. But 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 to me, that's but, that's uh, equivocating yeah. on what we mean by discrimination. We mean it in the pejorative sense. We mean it in, in, in built into it when we're talking about it in political context. We're talking about unjust discrimination. Uh-huh. Typically, discrimination based on arbitrary or immutable characteristics or, or arbitrary facts about you. Um, if you're going to discriminate, like, for example, if I if I wanted to select between two possible, I don't know, people that I want to date or whatever, um, yeah. I may choose the one who I find more attractive, and and then choose against the one who I find less attractive. There's, you can you can describe that in terms of the denotative meaning of the word discrimination as a form of discrimination. I'm not denying that that there there, there is a use of that word that is consistent with that. What but what we mean are such or such examples more akin to if I'm choosing between two candidates for a job and i choose the one with that's white over the one that's black because built into my psychology or because i've internalized a bunch of social norms that favor the person with white skin over the person with black skin despite the fact that that doesn't have any any obvious connection with their ability yeah. to do the job right mm-hmm. that's the kind of discrimination that we are against and what i think the the, the non-binary crowd are talking about and the trans activist types are talking about is we have forms of discrimination based on gender identity in society that are akin to the second example and less akin to the first example and that and that's why it's problematic because the people who get screwed are the non-binary and trans people um and i would well, okay. First of all, uh, as far as like that type of discrimination specifically, there are costs that you're in that you have to pay for uh, as a person who's discriminating against qualified talent. Which is a rare thing. I think we, we, we can both agree on that. Uh, qualified people who work very well um, and are interested in doing the best for your customer, they don't grow on trees. Um, anybody who's done any recruiting knows. Um, so for you to use some sort of uh, weird characteristic like that as far as judgment of uh employment you're shooting yourself in the foot someone else is going to hire that person at least you're not necessarily because you can have it it, it, well not in general i understand what you're saying but not necessarily because you can have a pool of applicants who the differences between their ability to do the work actually isn't that different and and if you're going to discriminate against a white qualified person and a black qualified person let's say that their qualifications are exactly the same by whatever metric you want to use, right? But you choose the white person because they're white. That's still a form of discrimination, consistent with the fact that you're still out of your out of your pool of talent. You're still getting the same quality of worker. And how how would we? Uh, I, I just want to know what kind of uh, talent pool are we talking about here? Because if you're competing with other businesses, I, I don't think there is such a thing as an, such an ample talent pool that you are able to just freely discriminate uh, based on color without having to run into some issues. It's like, if what I'm if saying is that it, about, is, is definitely possible. It's, it's possible, possible but because a lot of the talent pools for a lot of different forms of employment are not, are, are wide. Some of them are, the more specialized you get then the pool is shortened for sure. Yeah. Right? But then yeah. what usually like education, for example, is that the people who are eligible, but the people who are eligible at, at the higher levels, because of a whole bunch of systemic systemic factors tend to be less and less likely to be non-white. And there's a whole bunch of systemic reasons for that. Um, And so like, it's, it's, it's more complicated than just having two candidates. 
because of a whole bunch of systemic factors, there are going to be sectors of our economy or whatever mm-hmm. where people are searching for talent and the more specialized they get, right? There are less and less black people to even have the opportunity, right? So one example of this would be head coaches in the NFL, right? Just one off the top of my head, right? Um, it's not that it's not that we don't have a whole bunch of black people who could be head coaches in the NFL, but like when you start getting to the upper echelon because of a whole bunch of systemic factors, there's less and less black people at that level to even be candidates for that position for various different systemic reasons, right? And so it makes the whole discussion more complicated because it's not just a matter of, oh, I have a white candidate and I have a black candidate, and the discrimination takes the form of choose the white one over the black one because racism, right? It's A lot of it is like built into like whether or not black people can even be a part of the pool in the first place because you have to jump through all the hoops, you have to get through all the credentials, you have to get through all the experience, et cetera, right? Like that's that's part of the landscape of the kinds of systemic forms of discrimination or oppression or racism that a lot of people have in mind. Now, to bring it back to gender, though, because we've been talking for almost a whole hour and haven't really touched the documentary. <laughs> um, what all I'm all, all I'm trying to do is analogize like the, the what people have in mind in terms of this discourse is are mm-hmm. those kinds of factors that negatively implicate trans and non-binary people in virtue of the fact that they are admitting of gender identities that are non-standard and that in some sense uh, um, deviate from what they call the gender binary. And, and, and they view it as oppressive inherently in virtue of these tensions that I'm trying to describe. And they're, and they're, they're not simple. They're actually very multifaceted and, and, and complex because of the nature of how our society is organized. The organizational structure of our society is itself nuanced and complex. It's extremely complex, right? Um, which is why I objected to your centralized your centralization thing because it to me felt like you were oversimplifying the, how our society is uh, uh, organized. Um, but no, and we're, it looks like we're gonna have to do a part two because you got to go soon. But I do want to ask you some very specific things about the documentary. What sure. can you can you and you can you can you can respond to me and then and then answer this question. Can you pinpoint something in the documentary that stood out maybe the most to you? in terms of some of the issues that you have, or bones you have to pick with this discourse on gender? Uh, yeah, just there were two. Um, there were, you know, two or three uh, interviews in there that sort of uh, struck me as extremely strange. Um, one of them being uh, the, I forgot, I believe she was a, a gender affirming uh What's it called? Um, a pediatrician, uh, the one with the green hair. My name is Michelle Forcier, um, and I have a medical degree from University of Connecticut Residency, University of Utah Pediatrics, and I've worked for a number of different Planned Parenthoods for 20 years. I do advanced contraception and abortion, as well as gender hormones, and sort of looking at the whole sort of schema of gender, sex, and, and reproductive um, justice. So you've done. Um, so that was probably one of the more disturbing interviews within uh, the actual uh, within the actual documentary, um, and this was because uh, of her outright refusal to acknowledge any sort of biological reality as far as sex and how it typically um, expresses. Well, not typically, really, almost in in almost every case. Uh, has a certain set of biological criteria that go along with uh, the, deline- the delineation between um, man and woman. Um, specifically, when um, Matt Walsh asked her, 
um, would it be wrong to assume that a chicken is female if I saw it lay eggs? If I, if I see a chicken laying eggs and I say that's a female chicken laying eggs, did I assign female or am I just observing a physical reality that's happening in the world? Does a chicken have gender identity? Does a chicken cry? Well, a Does chi a chicken commit suicide? Let's frame it because you're talking, you're trying. A chicken to has sex like any, like any biological organism. A chicken has organism. an assigned gender. But a chicken doesn't have a gender identity. So we assign female to chickens when they lay eggs? That's a, we that's... assume they're female if they lay eggs. And her immediate deflection was, hey, uh, do chickens have feelings? Do chickens cry? Do chickens have depression? Or do they try to commit suicide? Which I thought was, you know, it's such a simple question. And I think the reason why he asked it was so that he'd be able to point out to a, a quite frankly, a ridiculous answer. Um, in order to avoid making the concession that, okay, yeah, well, there are certain things that we can use as, as actual markers to define whether someone is a male or female. I think that speaks to the confusion that's happening now between, uh, like, gender and sex, whereas before, we, we, we were able to say, like, all right, well, there's sex and then there's gender. And now it, I'm seeing it happen very slowly. Maybe it's just me. Um, I don't. I don't think it is. But the the definitions of those two are starting to bleed into each other, and they're starting to just become interchangeable. And I think that's a that's a huge problem, especially with someone who's actually treating children and has to make actual decisions whether or not she would administer uh, drugs like Lupron. One of the drugs used is Lupron, right? Which mm -hmm. has actually been used to chemically castrate sex offenders. You know what? I'm not sure that we should continue with this interview because it seems like it's going in a particular direction. Well, you're a medical professional. I am a medical professional. So you don't want to talk about the drugs that you give to kids or? Again, I'm a physician and I use medication. You're choosing exploitive words, drugs I give to I'm, kids. I'm choosing a chemical word that was in a dictionary. That's not a correct term for puberty blocking. I, mean, I could like look it up person. on my phone, but I'm pretty sure if I looked it up like, you, you can look it up on your phone. It says medical definition, the administration of a drug to bring about a marked reduction in the body's production of androgens and especially testosterone. And I'm saying, as a pediatrician who takes care of hundreds of these kids, when you use that terminology, you are being malignant and harmful. I mean, there are some who would say that giving chemical castration drugs to kids is malignant and harmful. It's about the context of caring for a child and, and seeing the the suffering that kids can have that have not been in affirmative home situations. Um, which she avoided completely uh, the subject once it was brought up. Um, and she makes claims about the reversibility of, of, uh, of these procedures. At what age does the medical transition begin with uh, medication? So medical affirmation begins when the patient says they're ready for it. So that could be a kiddo who is just starting puberty and panicking because they're getting breast buds or their penis is getting bigger and busier and they're worried about all kinds of masculine changes. And that way, puberty blockers, which are completely reversible and don't have permanent effects, are wonderful because we can put that pause on puberty. Just like if you were listening to music, you put the pause on and we stop the blockers and puberty would go right back to where it was, the next note in the song 
just delayed that period of time. I think that's a very dangerous thing, you know, for, for children. I think if you're an adult, you should be able to do it. Uh, you're, you, you have, you own your own body. And if you think that's, this will help you. And if you make a mistake, that's on you. If you don't make a mistake, that's, a, you know, I'm glad for you. Um, but the fact that this is the person that's making decisions for children, I think is quite worrisome. Fair. I mean, I, I, I feel you. I felt the tension that you felt too. Um, and you, you know me, I gotta, I gotta try to, my best to steal man things. Of course. Um, I will say that I, I do think it is more complicated. There are, there are some complexities that we need to take, take into account. One is from my limited understanding as a non-expert, um, if you allow a person to, to mature into adulthood, um, and there's no, um, let's call them medically safe, interventions done with respect to that natural process of development into a, a mature let's say you're a biological you're the what's the term the sex assigned at birth i know you you're annoyed by this but i'm try, trying to accommodate the discourse the sex assigned at birth of the person in question was male um and this person experiences gender dysphoria and identifies as as a woman um, mm -hmm. If you allow the process of maturation all the way until they're 18 without any kind of intervention, puberty blockers, anything like that, then you're going to they're going to reach a point in their in their maturation where the processes that are necessary, the interventions that are necessary at that point are going to be way more intrusive. Um, and so they're going to require more surgeries and things like that. That are, So that's an example of something that's more intrusive. But if you give them puberty blockers and things like that and delay those things or stop those things in the first place, then there's less intrusive things that they would have to undergo in order to be able to have their body, insofar as they want to at 18, conform to the identity, their, their gender identity, their preferred gender identity, or the gender identity that they feel that they are, whatever the the most uh, accurate way to describe that consistent with uh, people who sincerely hold these views is. Um, and so that, that is a kind of complex thing. Whether, so the, part of the controversy is whether you even buy the initial premises in the first place. And I don't think that you do, but I'm, what I'm trying to articulate is that actually is a position that I've heard people on this side articulate. And so one of the reasons why they're really, really interested in having teenagers um, in being introduced to puberty blockers and things like that in the first place is for that reason. There are practical considerations in terms of that. Um, and, the, and what they don't, because the surgeries are themselves riskier. Um, than a lot of these other things as well. So they're, they're, a lot of these people, not every one of them, I would argue, but a lot of these people are actually operating in good faith. They may be mistaken, but they're operating in good faith because what they're trying to do is they're trying to maximize the ability of a person who genuinely is, has experiences gender dysphoria and genuinely wants to transition eventually, maximize the ability to do that in the least intrusive way and the least medically risky way. Yeah, uh, I think that last part, especially the medically risky way, uh, I think that is something that's being thrown by the wayside. Uh, I don't think there's enough evidence in all to, cases or some cases. Uh, in most cases, if you're administrating, if if you're administrating uh, uh, these, um, quite frankly, experimental uh, procedures on children, in which we don't really quite understand what it will do to them in the long term. And as far as what we know so far, there's there is very little. Uh, there's actually a lot more evidence that it actually causes permanent damage, and we're seeing, uh, for example, communities of tens of thousands of uh, what's it called of people who've decided to reverse um, their gender assignment surgeries or their hormone therapy. Um, there aren't that many trans people. Like it, it's like it's a very rare occurrence. So. It's it's probably in like how, hundreds how would you of know thousands. They, 
how would I mean, you know we they're, not, they're not coming out and identifying because of the persecution they fear they might. Well, that's the thing. It's like we have the society that has probably the most acceptance, as far as we know, um, uh, of uh, transgender people anywhere on the planet. Perhaps the only the, one the rivaling society it would that be made Thailand. This, what is a woman documentary is the most accepting of trans people? Uh, of the gender ideology, absolutely. It's like this one. The, the same Canada. society that is banning trans people in sports is the same society that is the most accepting of trans people? I mean, in New York, it's illegal to misgender someone as an institution. And so it is. That's true. So is That's it, true. In, That's in true. There are pockets like, of our society, but what I'm trying to get you to do is be careful about the overgeneralization because there are pockets of our society that are antithetical to it as well. And so sure. if you're going to make the general claim that this is the most trans inclusive society, it's like, yeah, but, but that's, that's, that. that's also relative because we're if we're talking about pockets in other societies, those pockets are not. No, 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 no. I'm talking minuscule. about no, 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 no. Let me. So let me clarify with respect to the United States specifically. Right. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of places where it's like being trans and non-binary. You're going to be you're going to be very supported because the political milieu and the cultural milieu surrounding that place, places like New York, places like here in San Francisco, where I live, um, are conducive to it because a lot of people recognize the value of the support because it minimizes in their minds. And I think, I think this is probably generally true. It minimizes the likelihood that people will be driven to suicide or will endure all of the kinds of person forms of persecution they otherwise would endure from people who don't understand. But there are other pockets of our society, stereotypically places like in the South, deep red States, uh, the countryside Bible belt, uh, et cetera, where, not so much. That's not going to be accepted. And so you're liable to be ridiculed and get all the forms of persecution that are associated with being trans and non-binary, uh, being regarded as weird, being discriminated against, being ostracized socially, um, et cetera, if you're trans or non-binary. Um, and so to say that the whole society of the United States as a whole is the most inclusive of trans people is not quite accurate or like not properly attentive to the nuance I'm trying to describe, if that makes sense. Um, well, if we're comparing, if we're comparing the overall sentiment uh, here to other societies across the world, um, even if it is in certain pockets, even if it is not necessarily uniform in this country, the overall sentiment, if you were to sort of quantify it, would be much higher than almost anywhere else on the planet. And I think we can both agree on that. And that that was like in relation to other places. Um, uh, I mean, maybe. It depends on the. It, it would depend on the places you're comparing it to, but I, I think I think I understand what you're saying better enough to agree with the the, the main the general sentiment you're saying. I'll, I'll partially yeah. agree, um, uh, but I'm just attentive. So, but okay, so go ahead, go ahead. I wanted you to finish your thought. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. My my point is uh, to see that there are people who regret these these sorts of decisions, and to see that there are actual consequences that you know would completely bar someone for example uh, a young girl uh would would rest removed and her uh you know her what's it called um her gonads like affected by chemical castration or think drugs like lupron which uh impede the full development of her sexual um this is something that i think a person who's not able to legally get a tattoo because it's deemed as something that um, is a permanent change that you may not be, you may not have the mental faculty to undertake quite yet. I think that's uh, that's a very dangerous combination, and I think it actually, in my opinion, it violates the Hippocratic oath of doing no harm. Because I don't think you know enough to well, know whether or not 
this is harm. Like you cannot give me the argument I understand. and prove I understand. that you are not harming this person. And I think that I, I, by I think is a violation of that. Oath. I think an argument can be given. I don't know that you'll find it convincing. And so this may fall by the wayside, but I, there's a couple of things I want to point out. The, the, there's something about the comparison that is not in terms of, and again, this is through, filtered through my, the limitations of my understanding in terms of what I think people are trying to convey about the importance of doing this stuff. Um, uh, transitioning people, putting uh, uh, young children on puberty blockers, etc. Um, there's a there's a little bit of a disanalogy if you're going to compare it to getting a tattoo, because the purpose of getting a tattoo is a tattoo in some sense is a kind of adornment on one's body. Um, it isn't really about one's identity. It isn't really about one's conception of themselves, or at least not essentially. Um, it can it can in some sense be a part of your identity insofar as the significance of whatever the tattoo is symbolizes a facet of your personality or something like that. Um, I don't know that people identify with their tattoos in the way that they identify as a man or a woman. Um, and so that that part of the analogy is a little bit uneven. Um, and so it makes the comparison a little strained. But the part mm -hmm. that the, the point that you're making, I do want to recognize the validity of it. I do understand what you're saying in terms of like the logic of the permanence of the change being done. And there is an irreducible um, inability to predict whether or not this person will regret this permanent change or want to change their minds later. And we do have a whole bunch of cases of people who quote unquote detransition. And so this this makes this decision a really high stakes decision and i think your contention and a lot of the, the contention of people who agree with you is that if we as a matter of medical practice are allowing minors to make permanent decisions with respect to their body that they may change their mind about or come to regret later and we're in some sense encouraging this because because the latest and greatest of medical science says it's a good thing when it may not necessarily be and actually a lot of uh, uh, medical research is being done to suggest that it actually might not be the best option uh, for for children that young, um, then we need to think twice about it. I think that's the point you're making, and I, I recognize the validity of it. However, there are cases where people actually do end up going on to not regret it, and they end up kind of, so to speak, living the rest of their lives the, to the best of their abilities like anybody else. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say they live happily ever after, live perfect lives, because nobody does, but there are success stories. And the success stories are being ignored or downplayed by a lot of people who are emphasizing the risks involved. Um, so there's that. But two, if you're going to have a success story, then you would want to start earlier rather than later. And I know that the cutoff point for making decisions like this is adulthood at 18, but, but that doesn't coincide with the, 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 the natural physical development of puberty, et cetera. Right. Puberty starts before 18. So that that's one of the reasons why I think people are trying to advocate that this happens younger, even though there's a tension um, that we have in our society between two sets of norms. One set of norms is these kinds of decisions are left to legal adults at 18. But they're trying to take into account the, the kind of medical biological factor of puberty, which starts as young as 10 years old. Right. Um, and so how do you weigh all of that? Um, I don't, I, I'm not pretending to have all the answers, but what I am trying to do is give us a better appreciation for all of the nuances involved. So to, to, mm -hmm. to make this a little bit more of a, a all encompassing kind of thing, because I, I think that a lot of people will come away from this documentary thinking that there is no possible justification for doing anything to children that young. And I'm trying to establish that actually there are medically necessitated rational grounds for looking to do this, but, but 
I do hear your point about whether or not these rational medical grounds are being weighed properly against the high stakes nature of the decision. Yeah. That's kind of me being a moderate, kind of me splitting the difference. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think uh, even beyond uh, the detransitioning or changing your mind consequences, there are physical, uh, you know, consequences like early onset cancer or yeah. infection osteoporosis or, is a, oh is my god potential, is another potential uh drawback of taking particular uh forms of puberty blockers if you take too much um, and there's yeah. actually been a case of somebody who got osteoporosis really bad if, yeah. she was very so young too right 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 so th- so yeah there are there are but but the reason so we need to have this discussion like this in a mature way that is in some sense tracking the facts to the best of our ability. And there may be some things that I fudged because I'm not an expert. I tried to lead with that. Mm-hmm. But, we, but we can't be taboo to question the decision to transition kids. And we can't be being slandered as transphobic for asking serious, good faith questions about whether or not this is a good idea in terms of standard medical practice. At the, at the, on the other hand, though, those who typically lean right us in it need to be able to have these, like, be able to engage in good faith with some of the considerations about um like the nature of identity itself which is which is actually like really like hard to talk about in ways that deviate from a lot of the preconceived notions that we have and expectations mm -hmm. that we have surrounding men and women like like people are very deeply uncomfortable with that because Mm -hmm. because it interferes with their conception of themselves it interferes with what they what they've learned to expect from their children. And a lot of people are being protective of their children, understandably so, but from different political starting points and different philosophical starting points. Some people want to protect their children in, so, in the sense of, I want to be able to make sure that my, ch- my child's trans identity is affirmed as early as possible so that they don't have to go through all of the negative outcomes of not having it affirmed. They're, so they're protective in that sense, and they're, they're pro-transitioning. Then you have people who want to be protective of, I don't want my child to be indoctrinated with this, with this weird ideology and, and being tricked into thinking that they're something that they're not, and then being encouraged to undergo a whole bunch of permanent surgeries and transitionary things and puberty blockers and things like that because they're confused, right? And so I'm being protective of that. So like everybody's being protective, but they're starting from different philosophical starting points that we're not really, we're talking past each other because we're not really trying to uh, account for what the other side is saying. I've talked too much. I want to let you have the last word and then we'll get you out of here. Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I think, um, one, I think there's uh, there's an invasion of the whole conversation uh, with gender theory and queer theory that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the medical uh, legitimacy of um of what is actually an aesthetic um, surg- uh, medical intervention. Like, you know, you, you think that it's very uh, unlike tattoos, but tattoos are aesthetic, uh, you know, changes, permanent changes to your, to your body, um, just as uh, hormone treatment or uh, surgery to change the appearance of your, um, uh, of your body or your sexual organs. That is an aesthetic change. It doesn't actually change the essence of uh, your genetic makeup. It doesn't change the way you think about yourself necessarily as much as it is. Um, it's essentially like affirmation through visual confirmation for yourself, if that makes any sense. I mean, partially, but I, I think 
it it it, it, like it, it doesn't comes change really, your... really close. No, I understand what you're saying, but it, it comes really really close to downplaying the importance that it has to the one's psychology and and in one sense of comfortability in their own body, and that's what we have purpose, to prove that. the ultimate goal of it. One, two, it's not it's not obvious how that's any more different than than doing corrective surgery for a person with a cleft palate, right? You can say it's an aesthetic change, but that doesn't change the fact that no. it actually is going to hold on. It doesn't change the fact that it actually has a very uh, well documented relationship with a person feeling more comfortable in their own body, and and it has all kinds of implications for how they're going to be perceived socially, right? Because if you have an obvious deformity like that, if I can call it that without being too politically incorrect, right? Like that's going to have all kinds of implications for your self esteem. That's going to have all kinds of implications for how you feel about yourself. That's going to have all kinds of implications for how other people perceive you. And there, there's a lot of those dynamics and dimensions going on with people who transition as well. It's um, not mere, it is aesthetic, but it's not merely aesthetic because, it, because of the, the nuanced relationship that it has with the person's self confidence and how they're going to be perceived socially, which uh, interacts sure. uh, in uh, complex and, ways. And the cleft palate example that's if you long enough to actually even decide that you can get a surgery for it the cleft palate surgeries are usually done on children and infants because well infants actually because you why 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 they're do? unable why? to suckle on um on they usually die from malnutrition that's part of it like that, but that's not the it, only reason why but also you have an operation on very young uh, children who can't make the decision for themselves right yeah but this is a life-saving intervention, but that's exactly but a functional how these change. People, I know you disagree. I, I know no, you no, disagree no, with no, that, no. but let me let me just make this more real. We're, we're, we're not talking about the image self-perception. I okay, I understand that, but no, but it's gonna it's gonna. You're right. The infant doesn't have the self-perception when they're first born. You're right about that, but they're going to have a self-perception later, and we know that. We because we know how development works, live. and we and so 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 right, right right you're right you're right right. But what my point is is this is exactly, and you may disagree with it for various different reasons, but this is exactly how the people who are promoting this feel that that that, that gender affirmation care, as they call it, is. It, they, they think it plays an analogous role in the life of the trans or non-binary person as the corrective surgery for cleft palate has in the life of the relevant infant in question. That's, that's, that's how they think of it fundamentally. But they, they would be wrong, to demonstrate... but that's how they think of it. Okay, that, that, that may be how they think of it, but I think there's a very easy logical test we can apply to this. Do people commit less or more after surgery? For, for trans people or just in general? For, for trans people. Um, the, late, the statistics that I saw said that this, the rate of suicidality goes up after surgery. So then how can we possibly make the claim that the actual affirmation of that person's self-perception would be beneficial to them. Be, well, like objectively so beneficial. What makes, what, what makes so what makes it what makes it hard is it's not clear if the reason why it goes up is because they got surgery or is because of a confluence of other factors. You would uh -huh. have to know that information in order to complete the argument that you're implying. But at this point, you could say that it's possible that. Um, the, the, one of the biggest intentions, uh, intended outcomes of the surgery fails in a statistically significant number of cases. And that's why the rate of suicidality goes up. That is a possible explanation, not a confirmed one. And if that is true, then it would underscore the point you're making.
for sure. But uh, there are other think... possible explanations that 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 have more to do with the fact that um, people, a lot of trans and non-binary people post-surgery are still be, uh, facing various forms of persecution and discrimination despite the body transformations. And I that mean... is negatively impacting their psychology because they've already done the permanent thing and still haven't changed. It still hasn't fundamentally changed uh, uh -huh. Because it's not it's not just about their affirmation. That's not the only reason why people undergo transition. There mm -hmm. is a component about how they're going to be received socially as well, right? And so that that is is interacting, and that's why I tried to bring that up in the in, with the analogy. I know you got to go soon, so I'm gonna let you have the last word. I yeah. promise it's time. Yeah, sweet. Uh, you know, just to wrap it up real quick. Uh, one, as far as uh, under, I don't think that um, the necessary lack of uh, concrete. Um, causation of that suicidality rate is necessarily detracting from my point as much as it is complete evidence that the burden of proof has not been met in their claim they're the one making they're the ones making the propositional claim that this gender affirming surgery is objectively beneficial the fact that we cannot answer those questions especially the question that i asked is i mean if we're using logical principles the burden of proof lies on the person making the claim. I'm not the one making the claim. They are. And I think that's an obvious gaping hole in it. Um, and two, uh, even if you are, uh, if you do, do end up looking like a woman and having uh, a sexual organ similar to a woman, the vast majority of, of men are heterosexual. If they're going to be choosing partners, it doesn't matter if you looked apart. I mean, and there are also women that looked apart far better than other women, let alone men who've transitioned into being women. So either way, that discrimination, which is completely justifiable, if you don't want to sleep with someone uh, or have children with someone or, you know, look at a certain a person a certain way, you are not obliged to do so just because they want you to. It's like you're you're not only competing against yeah, women. It's like which most people are. aren't attractive. Like most people are of average attractiveness. It's like yeah, there are people who are. To, oh, I might be shocked, be shocked to, to know this. You might be shocked what? to know this, but there are there are a lot of men who are attracted to trans women. Uh, there are a lot who have who have, who have male anatomy. If way. we're defining a lot by more than five, yes, there are a lot. Uh, but if we're talking about no, uh, no, no, I mean no, their no, proportion I, I you, this, in. I think you be you this. <laughs> The amount of men who <laughs> who are attracted to that, I think, would shock you. <laughs> uh, to be clear, I mean, I live in San Francisco, bro. I would I've be. Had discussions. I would I've be also surprised. looked at the data, but but Deborah So actually, who, who who opposes a lot of the things, who's kind of on your side on a lot of this, actually mm -hmm. points this out too because she's a sexologist, she's a sex researcher, um, uh, and and former academic uh, sex researcher. Um, but the the, the actual the data is clear on this. There are actually men, and and they they consider themselves straight. Which is a which is a whole another fun conversation, um, because because what they're attracted to is the most effeminized version of of a biological male possible, and so it's the feminine energy that they're going for. Even though this person is male, it's the fact that they present as female that they are attracted to, at least partially. Um, that's interesting. That's fascinating. Do you actually. happen to remember what like the the statistical breakdown is for that? No, and I'm gonna find oh, it for okay. our part two because we're yeah. gonna end up doing a part two because you gotta go. Yeah, I have um, to go. So. Uh, Ibrahima, thank you. Did you want to uh, give a, another uh, closeout uh, in another language like you, you gave your opening? <laughs> uh, 
well you know as always salam alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu uh you know uh hello to all my uh muslims out there and even the non-muslims you're, you're all part of the ummah but uh you know this was fun i'm looking forward to part two um and we're i gonna actually have... talk about the documentary yeah, we're gonna, I, was gonna, I was gonna say let's actually talk about the documentary next time <laughs> we got to talk about right i'm like bro we're always talking about race it's not a race episode bro it's not a race episode bro we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a part two i guess yeah man happen. all right well as always uh thank you and uh until uh part two uh is it assalamualaikum is that how, is that a... uh, yes sir all right, all right. I see. I'm learning. I'm learning. This was the. I'm learning this was the. <laughs> all right, all right, ladies and gentlemen. That was part one of the uh, Black Muse podcast episode on what is a woman. We didn't really get into the nitty gritty of the documentary, but we will soon. Uh, my friend Ibrahim, my guest, he had to go, uh, but we'll, we'll get into part two and we'll do a three and a four if we have to. We're gonna get into it though. Um, but I like the fact that this is going to be uh extended and so that we can really dive into the nuances. Um, so until next time, this has been the uh Black Muse podcast. I'm your host, uh, Jason Muse, uh, and I will see you again uh for part two. Until then, peace. <laughs>